Hey everyone, this is Dave Cruz from Flyber Labs, a podcast on business and innovation in the Midwest and beyond. Here you'll meet fascinating people and learn about new technologies and practices that will change how you look at life and business. Enjoy. All right, hey everyone, welcome to Flyover Labs, and today we get to interview Gary Weiss. Gary is the CEO and CTO of Sonic Foundry, and Sonic Foundry is a product media site that allows the organizations to publish videos and make them interactive. This could be a college capturing and publishing videos, taking a lecture, or a company wanting to live stream an event. And Sonic Foundry is based here, here in Madison, so I'm lucky enough to interview Gary in person. Gary also has a, quite a rich technology background, including time with IBM and AT&T, which we'll hear about. So uh, let's get going, and uh, Gary, thanks for uh, joining us today. Happy to do it. So uh, before we get into Sign Foundry and what you're doing now, can you tell us a little bit about your background and how eventually you got to Sign Foundry? Sure. I, uh, I like to kid people, uh, tell when they ask me what my core competency is, I, I usually say being bought. <laughs> and the reason, the reason for that is that uh, I started my career at uh, Sears Roebuck & Company where uh, I worked with the management to build a technology utility company uh, that basically did all the data processing communications for Sears' family of companies. Uh, when Sears decided to split apart, uh, they sold that business to IBM and mm -hmm. that's how I got into IBM originally. Uh, when I was at IBM, I had uh, joint responsibility with running IBM's uh, network that at the time was called Advantis. Uh, when IBM decided to globalize that network, I became the general manager of IBM Global Network and I actually built uh, wow. the IBM Global Network in about 22 countries. Uh, we were the first IBM organization to actually have direct control of the resources in country as opposed to the usual IBM management structure. Uh, the reason, I'm sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, how, how does network look? Like, you know, we're very familiar with the um, server client model. Like, back, in the, back then, what, what, what did the network mean? <laughs> back in the good old days. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, as, as some of your uh, listeners might realize, IBM had a technology called Systems Network Architecture, SNA. And that was kind of the predominant uh, enterprise networking standard before yeah. IP and before the Internet. So much of the network that we built and operated was SNA-based mm -hmm. uh, global network, mm -hmm. uh, global reach. Um, the reason that IBM decided to do that was basically to eventually sell that network in a bidding process. Hmm. And so AT&T wound up buying the IBM global network for about $5 billion, and we then became part of IBM. So that's the second time I was sold, uh, and we took about 5,000 IBM employees and moved them into AT&T. So uh, we then ran that network inside uh, AT&T and extended it. I eventually wound up being the uh, CEO of a company called Concert, which was a partnership between AT&T and British Telecommunications. Um, and then eventually AT&T uh, dissolved that partnership and decided to sell itself to Southwestern Bell. And that's when I got off the train <laughs> and uh, no longer was being sold. So I retired from AT&T at that time. Okay, and what year was that about? Oh, time flies when you're having fun. Probably yeah. about 2005, 2004. Wow. Okay. Yeah, you should write a, a book on all your experiences. That'd be a pretty good uh, study on technology through the, through the years. And uh, so, so you had a lot of experiences. I was curious if you had one or two that really kind of um, 
were especially like inspirational or meaningful or educational to you like throughout your career that really was, was interesting to you? Well, I think uh, given the background I have, a portion of it has been technology, a portion of it has been management. Mm -hmm. uh, answering the question from the management perspective, I think uh, developing the skills that it takes to lead uh, a thousand or five thousand people into following you into changing companies uh, is a pretty challenging and developmental kind of activity. Uh, it, I, I think that my experience anyway was the only way that you could really make that work was by, by being honest and sincere to the people and make sure you explained well what was going to happen, how it was going to happen, and so forth. So that was, a, that was from a management perspective, I think, a very uh, challenging uh, aspect. Uh, from a technology perspective, I think uh, that in the networking business uh, and even in the Sonic Foundry business today, when you have hundreds or thousands of customers and you're running remote systems, being able to collect data from those systems and use it to improve the customer experience and to provide input to the customers about what their problems are and how you're going to fix their problems uh, was pretty challenging. Uh, more, more challenging probably 20 years ago when some of the technology uh, that exists today wasn't commonplace. But uh, that would be, I guess, uh, the challenge that I had on the technology side of the business is developing uh, remote instrumentation systems and be able to collect and manage and absorb that data. Yeah, but right now there's the IoT, which is even can be a, a broader issue or a huge issue to try to collect all that data and make sense of it. That's right. Uh, so I'm, I'm curious about the leadership. Uh, how, like, how do you get ready to, or how do you train yourself to you know, lead 5,000 people? Uh, yeah, is it kind of something you learn on, on the job? Do you have mentors? Like, how did you figure it out? Well, in my, in my case, uh, it was really never by formal education. I, I really don't think there's a class you can take that prepares you for that. I think it's a combination of experience, uh, moving from managing 10 people to 50 people mm -hmm. to 500 people and so forth. And at the same time, having people who you can emulate and who uh, were inspirational to you as you were being led. And I think most people have had the experience that they have some very positive experience in that light and some negative experiences. And you kind of learn what not to do from the negative experiences and what to do from the positive experiences. And, and, and before we move on, I'm curious more, kind of about more of the intangibles. Like, you know, do you have to almost have like a certain level of confidence that you have to project? I mean, do you think um, or the type of like, energy you give off almost in order for people to actually lead or follow you? Because you know, here you're leading lots of people and they have to somehow get in, li get in line to a certain degree. And one of it's communication. But do you think there's more intangibles behind uh, a good leader? Well, I think, I think one of the cardinal rules is never panic. <laughs> because, because if you panic, all of those people are going to panic. <laughs> uh, and I think sometimes you, you know, any leader has to deal with a certain amount of adversity but you have to be uh, five parts honest to be able to share with people what some of the risks are in a manageable way, but then you have to be 5% inspirational or 50% inspirational to convince them that if they all do their job, they'll, they'll come out okay in the end. Yep, and did you have a tough circumstance where you had to tell people, we gotta lay off a lot of people, things aren't working out well? I, I actually was very fortunate <laughs> that in my progression of career, I never had a situation where there was any large layoffs. Uh, but I think uh, if you think about it a minute and you think about the difference in 
benefit systems and management systems between a company like Sears or IBM or AT&T, convincing people that that those changes are going to be good for them personally and manageable for them personally is is not the same challenge as laying people off, but it is a challenge. Mm-hmm. Or, or you were just that good, so you never had to lay people off. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, that's how you should leave that, 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 that answer now. All right. Uh, and last question was around your career, like would you have, you know, kind of any life lessons, would you have done anything differently? Looking back, like would you have taken a different role or would you have uh, um, made a different decision? Or, uh, <laughs> I mean, it's always, yeah. Well, uh, I'll tell you a funny story. When I was in college, uh, my aspiration was to become a career Air Force pilot. Really? And so I, starting out, I had a very different view of a career uh, than I wound up doing. Uh, and uh, as you can see from being here in person with me, uh, my visual acuity uh, it probably was not the best choice of potential <laughs> careers to want to be a career uh, pilot in the Air Force. But nevertheless, uh, I started out on a very different track, right? You're, I think part of your question, though, is uh, uh, as you progressed along that track, are there any ever any circumstances where uh, you, you might have learned lessons that would cause you to do differently than you did? Uh, I don't think anybody could say that that wouldn't be the case. I mean, we all learn from our experiences. Uh, I guess I am, am fortunate that I was able to get through that progression uh, with nothing that would have caused me to want to change uh, my career direction or my, uh, my way in which I progressed through that. But I think I learned a lot of lessons uh, from other people that I've worked with about how to improve my communications, how to improve mm-hmm. my management style. Gotcha, okay. Well, let's, let's talk about the Sonic Foundry. And uh, can you give us a, a little bit of an overview? I did a poorer job in the intro. So a little bit of an overview and um, just how, how you got to Sonic Foundry and uh, why you came here. Well, I, I uh, got to Sonic Foundry probably uh, uh, in a very different way than uh, you might think. I, I was a member of the board of Sonic Foundry uh, about probably 11 years ago or so I joined the board. And um, as we progressed through uh, managing the company, the company was changing a lot, and the experiences I had had at places like IBM or AT&T really uh, led uh, the board to decide that that I could play a role in leading the company as opposed to just being a board member. So that's how I became uh, uh, CEO and CTO of of Sonic Foundry. Um, I think in terms of the business, um, we, uh, as you and I were talking before we started to do the interview, uh, Sonic Foundry really has two very different lives. Uh, it's 21 or so years old from the start of Sonic Foundry, and when the company began, it was really focused on audio capture and editing software, music, etc. And uh, sometime in the 2003 time frame, uh, we basically dis- divested ourselves of that business to Sony here in Madison, uh, and uh, then bought a new technology called MediaSite, which is the video capture and management technology that we sell today. And so the company kind of ended one life and began a new life. Uh, that's right about the time when I joined the board. Okay. So uh, the, the product and, and technology that we sell today is very much oriented around all aspects of video content creation and management. 
Um, I think it's safe to say that the predominant source of revenue today is from higher education uh, because higher education uh, has a, a very great value to be obtained from capturing and recording lectures. And it's not just capturing them in classrooms. If you would have asked me five years ago the nature of the technology business, it would be recording appliances that captured video and audio in a classroom. But what we found is that educators are moving beyond that and educators want to create and uh, record their own content in the privacy of their home or their office and then publish that content to students and use the class time more for problem solving or interaction or discussion or quizzing than they do just standing up and giving a lecture. Oh, interesting. Makes sense. I would never thought about that either. Uh, so what, at what point did you realize that was an interesting uh, uh, use case? About, about five years ago. About five years ago. Right. And yeah. frankly, had we stayed just a room-based lecture capture yeah. company, uh, we would probably no longer be in business. That, that market is too narrow mm -hmm. to get the kind of growth and, and success that, that we're looking for. Interesting. Okay. And can you give us a, a little overview for like number of employees, the revenue that you guys have? Sure. Just to get a feel for it. Sure. Uh, we did, we acquired two other companies inorganically uh, about three years ago. Uh, one was in Japan, uh, a company called MSKK. Uh, and uh, that company was a distributor of our technology in Japan. Mm -hmm. The other company was called Media Mission in Holland. Uh, they also were a distributor of our technology in Holland. Uh, that took us, I mean, if you go back five years ago, we were about a $25 million a year company. Uh, today we're about 40, 41 million uh, with a plan to grow to 44 or so by the end of this year. Uh, number of employees probably worldwide is about 200, give or take. Uh, about 50 of those are in Japan, uh, probably about 15 or so are in Europe. Uh, and the rest are here in the United States. Uh, probably the majority in Madison and the rest scattered throughout the United okay. States. So it's a, it's a pretty small organization for you. <laughs> yeah. 5,000 to 200. <laughs> this is easy. No, um, let's see. So, how, so you kind of gave us a use case how customers use media site. One is you know, like the professors or teachers using it like in their office and then distributing that video to, for students to learn. Um, how else do you see? Uh, oh your customers yeah. using it. There's many other use cases. That, that is probably, if you look at our uh, revenue base, the higher education segment that we were talking about for those use cases, it's probably between 65 and 70 percent of our mm -hmm. total revenue. The rest of it is a combination of use cases. I'll talk about a couple of them just to give you an example. Um, we have what's called an events capture business. And think of this as a corporation wants to have an off-site event at a hotel. They want to be able to capture what goes on at that event, both in the mainline sessions and in the breakout room sessions. And they also want to stream the main sessions live for a hybrid kind of an event. We run that business on a turnkey basis. We'll contract with companies for us to uh, go on site to capture and stream those events. Uh, that's a growing portion of our business. Uh, we also, uh, just as a, another example, uh, tend to sell our technology, our capture and, and uh, uh, broadcast technology to companies that want to facilitate executive communications. So uh, if you're a large company and your uh, management team is in one city but you're spread across the, the United States and the world for that matter, 
and you want to be able to stream uh, communications outbound to those employees, we support that. So uh, those are two other uh, examples of, uh, of use cases. Mm -hmm. And uh, so like with events, you, you provide all the services too. You have your people, you have um, Sonic Foundry employees or consultants go on site and record everything. You, it's a, you take care of everything. That's correct. Interesting, okay. That's correct. We, have, we obviously use part-time labor as well in a company. Yeah. So with like a corporation with communication with employees, why would they use you guys over like, let's say, a, a link or something? Um, yeah, how, how do, what do you guys offer? Or what, I'm well, curious, yeah. we, we uh, I think, differentiate ourselves in terms of the quality and okay. editing of the capture. Mm -hmm. So this is, not, uh, uh, this is not just a kind of stream it and take what you get. This is capture it, edit it, put it into a showcase so that, so that the customer's uh, users or viewers can see only the content they want. Uh, front end it with a registration system that maybe helps the customer charge for access to the content. Mm -hmm. uh, we don't we don't sell that as part of our we don't have that as part of our core technology, but we'll bundle other registration systems in in front of our technology. Gotcha. Okay. And uh, and this is an all kind of innovation tech podcast, so I'm curious if you can kind of describe the the architecture, how uh, how it's um, your media site's built, and. Sure. Uh, the tech stack, or whatever you want, to, whatever you can share. That's not the confidential. <laughs> the concepts are never confidential. All right, exactly. Right. The the uh, trick is in the lines of code that actually make it. All work. right, we don't have to talk uh, about that. Uh, so so let me give you a uh, kind of a uh, high level view of it. Uh, first, from the standpoint of, of an appliance that captures what goes on inside a room. That's an important component of our technology. Uh, that device is a PC form factor technology, meaning it's a assembled uh, with PC kinds of components. We don't manufacture our own uh, raw circuit boards or things like that. Uh, the uh, operating system technology in that device is Windows 7, okay. uh, moving to Windows 10. And then the value add that we offer is a very sophisticated set of applications that run in that environment to manage the capture of up to five streams of video, slides, mm -hmm. audio, uh, and then uh, once it's captured, publish it in a unit to our server technology. So that's kind of the first layer of the yeah, technology, yeah. if you will. Um, we then have server technology, which runs in a Windows server environment that basically takes all of the published content or ingested content. So for example, if a customer has content that they captured outside of the media site system, we can ingest that content and make it available in our content management uh, library, if you will. Uh, and that server has a very wide range of function. It has some functions that are specialized to the administrators of the system that manage the security, the access, the migration of content to lower cost storage media, et cetera. Uh, the other part of it is customer facing. So um, obviously once you've got the content stored uh, in one of the industry standard formats, you now want to make it available to the viewers of that content. And uh, I think a very interesting element of the technology is that when we started this five or six years ago, we relied on a component of software called Silverlight that was provided mm -hmm. by uh, Microsoft, uh, as well as Windows Media. Uh, Microsoft has moved out of that world and today the, the end technology is HTML5 uh, implemented by anybody's browser. 
and so we've migrated to that world. Uh, it's, it's probably still, as different companies fight the browser wars out there in terms of who's got the best position to do HTML5, it's not really yet fully implemented by everybody. So that keeps us on our toes to make sure that our technology can adapt to run on any of the browsers, mm -hmm. whether it's Microsoft Explorer, Microsoft Edge, uh, Google Chrome, uh, Apple Safari, Firefox, etc. So that's the player side of the solution. And then finally, uh, we have a uh, set of products uh, that generally go under the heading of My Media Site that allow the individual person to capture content in their own client environment and then publish that content up into the same server environment. So I think that's probably enough yeah. detail for yeah. you to give you wow. an idea. No, no, that's great. And uh, so I'm curious, how much of video do you stream each year, do you think? Do you have a... <laughs> <laughs> we, we have two uh, uh, measurements, if you will. Uh, we have a hosting environment where if the customer doesn't want to license our product for on-site running in their own server farm, we will host it for them in our computer centers. We have redundant computer centers. They're not, don't think of it as, uh, as us having big buildings or anything. We yeah, simply yeah. rent space and yeah, operate yeah. servers. Um, the, in that environment, we have had a huge growth in, in the amount of content that we stream and capture. We tend to measure it uh, more by number of terabytes under management yeah, right. uh, because that's a, an easier metric. And I think in our hosting environment, um, I'm going to say somewhere around 100 terabytes. Uh, I'm looking at Tammy because uh, she probably knows the numbers better than I do. That's a lot. Uh, but, <laughs> uh, but our customers then also run uh, our product in their own data centers. Yeah, um, one of our largest customers is University of Leeds uh, in the UK. And so they manage their own disk storage and so forth, and we have less visibility of how much data or how much uh, how much video streaming the, that they do in that environment. Leeds, just for an example, uh, tends to capture over 400 lectures a day. So wow. Just, to give you a, just a the sense. one university. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Um, so yeah, I'm curious how. Yeah, how, how do you reach out to customers? You know, you talked about channel partners and you bought some of those, but do you still work through channel partners or is it all direct or a combination? Combination. combination. We, we, uh, we have a sales force for higher education that deals with the top 200 to 250 higher education accounts here uh, in the United States. Uh, that is a very close, direct relationship with those customers. So our folks are in there selling uh, across the different schools uh, in, the, in the universities. Uh, we also have channel partners. Uh, the channel partners actually do two things for us. Number one, in some cases they find the customer, meaning the customer will approach them for the inclusion of our technology into their classroom buildings or whatever. And in other cases they act as a facilitator or integrator. Uh, we may have sold the customer directly but the customer needs to install cameras mm -hmm. and other pieces of audiovisual equipment and we'll work with our partner to do the installation. Uh, oh, sorry. Um, well, I noticed, I think it was the California education system or some, something, CSU. yeah, I saw that. And uh, so how, I mean, at large, so how in the world do you actually implement that? Like, how do you, uh, how do you start? Because you don't have to put like probably 10,000 cameras across the entire, all the institutions, uh, like how do you, how does the client kind of start working with you to sure. keep going? Well, let me, 
let me start by acknowledging that the selling cycle in higher education is pretty long. Uh, and I'll give you three examples, I guess, just to make the point. Uh, North Carolina State University is one of our larger customers, largest customers here in the United States. And the first sale to North Carolina was probably about eight years ago now. And it was to a single school in the university, in the engineering school. And so we began by equipping, I think, 20 classrooms in the engineering building at the North Carolina State campus. Then we went to another school. Then the CIO decided that he wanted to do a campus-wide implementation. And now it's up to the point of some 200-plus classrooms. So that took eight years. Wow. And so it's very much <laughs> incremental, right, uh, as you go through. And each individual school, usually, in the university has its own funding challenges to decide how and when it's going to make an investment in this kind of technology. Uh, the other extreme probably would be the University of Leeds, where uh, the, the uh, professor that had responsibility for education uh, basically got funding from the chancellor of the university to do it all at once. So that went from an RFP uh, in the spring to a full implementation by September. Mm. So, the, the, but those are the two extremes, right? Yeah. A long selling cycle with a long rollout and a short selling cycle with a very fast rollout. Yeah, wow. And, and I'm curious, do you guys have, do you guys use any filters or any technology, to, like any computer vision to, is any anything inappropriate? I, mean, I assume you guys don't get much in a, inappropriate material, you know, being streamed. Um, and, well, and is it all, it's pretty much all of the material probably reviewed, like have you ever ran into a circumstance where, you know, there's inappropriate material that you had to remove or monitor? No, I, yeah. I think uh, we stay out of the content side of the business. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, the customer is responsible okay, for their own right. content. And yeah. so uh, I would say in our case, uh, our customers are uh, all either uh, corporate enterprises or higher education institutions that we've never had any exposure to any concern yeah. about that problem. Okay. And the, do, you, uh, do you publicly disclose your pricing? Like how do you price? Is that uh, Well, as you might guess, we tier our pricing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, the, What's the, an example for, I don't know, a mid-sized university or? Uh, let me see if I can give you a couple of examples maybe. Uh, clearly, a uh, customer like NC State or, or Leeds will get the best discounts. Mm -hmm. We tend to price off of a price sheet and then discount off of that price sheet. Okay. And the more you buy, the higher the discount, which is standard yeah, in any, just about yeah, any yeah. business, right? I think if you're a small customer and you maybe have 10 classrooms and that kind of an, an environment, uh, in fact, I think the example we sometimes use is uh, 20 classrooms the price for that might be somewhere around two hundred fifty to three hundred thousand dollars up front, okay. Okay. and then there's a support fee associated with it, okay. right? Usually somewhere between fifteen and twenty percent of your support fee. Gotcha. Okay, that's helpful. And uh, so now I have more questions for, for you specifically in your role. But before we do that, I was I was in Madison for a long time, followed Song Foundry for many years, and uh, the, you guys have always operated. Not you guys before your time. Primarily, we operate at a loss. And I've always been, like for a while, I understood it because you're trying to grow, but I'm still curious why you guys always operate at a loss. And that's a very loaded question. I'm more curious because it's like, well, because we're not, I understand the, the, the income statement, but uh, more as like, you know, do you have like other projects you're working on that you're trying to develop or, you know, what, uh, sure. yeah, why do you continue? We, we 
tend to be a uh, small public company. And uh, we have an obligation to our investors to balance profit with revenue growth. Mm -hmm. And uh, we have tended in the last five years to uh, not do a lot of invest ahead kind of stuff that has a high cost profile to it. We've in instead done some very tailored acquisitions. We've done some very uh, focused investments with relatively low cost and a lot of leverage on our existing technology. Uh, I think from a cash flow perspective, we have been cash positive for the last three years. Mm. And the, yeah. the intricacies of gap accounting and reported profitability um, obviously tell a different story, but from the standpoint of the sustainability of the business and the health of the business, we've, we've been cash positive for a number of years. When you guys have such a large upfront payment too, and depending upon how gap forces you to uh, recognize that, we don't have to go into that, but yes, that makes sense, okay. Um, yes, good point about the cash flow. Yeah, it really, it really is though a matter of balancing growth yeah. with profit, profit yeah. and uh, you know we've not done anything aggressive like uh, investing in building a technology that costs a lot of money up front and then hoping yeah. we can sell it. That's not the method that we've had. Okay, gotcha. Uh, so I, yeah, I'm curious to learn a little bit more about your role and uh, what you do. Um, you know, so as CEO, CEO, can you kind of tell us about your priorities? Um, like in an overall grand vision, you know, what what's the board expect you to do? <laughs> well, I, I think it would be fair to say the board uh, expects more growth and more profit. That's the but but that's the way it should. <laughs> yes, right. Yeah. And so uh, I think uh, probably a substantial amount of my time is spent coaching and developing the team that we have to try to get the absolute best performance that they're capable uh, to the front. Uh, I think we've, uh, we've developed a very good team of people. Uh, I think the, the other role I think I uh, invest a fair amount of time in is as a role of CTO to make sure that we're doing the right deployment of technology to make sure we provide good customer service, good customer satisfaction. Uh, kind of goes back to what I said earlier that uh, there are some very interesting things you can do to know what your customer is experiencing and be ahead of any of the challenges they might see in using your product. And uh, you have to have the technology to do that, but you also have to uh, implement the discipline to get your team to react to the data as it's available. So. I spend a fair amount of my time doing that as well. Okay, and and how do you communicate with your employees? Well, I know you probably talk it right, but uh, you know, like with your direct reports, do you have regular meetings set up? I'm always curious how people, you know, in a, your position kind of operate because everyone does it a little differently. And uh, so, like, how do you communicate with your direct reports? How about like the entire organization? Like, how do you facilitate that? On a, do you sure. have a schedule? Is it more ad hoc? Or? Sure. There's a lot of ad hoc, but I think. Uh, any organization that's global and of the size that we are, you have to have a minimum amount of formality to make sure you're covering all the bases, right? So I'll give you, uh, I'll give you a couple small examples. Uh, we have what we call senior leadership team meetings twice a month uh, that provide a way for all of my report directs and a few other people 
to make sure everybody's on the same page and understands uh, any issues or has an opportunity to resolve any issues that might exist in the business. Who's on uh, that? Or who's on this? Who's, on, who's, who's a part of that? What senior leaders? What, what titles? Uh, or what? If there's the a lot sales of leader, the sales. finance leader, the uh, engineering leader, the guy who runs the events business, the yeah. collection That's of good. probably yes. 10 people, yeah. right, yeah. that yeah. make up that group. Um, the uh, other thing we do is once a month we have a customer impact meeting where we go through and look at uh, what have been the metrics around service delivery to our customers in the last month. Uh, different group of people entirely, more of the uh, customer service and engineering people responsible for uh, the product and the delivery of service to the customers. Uh, once a year uh, we have uh, a sales meeting. Uh, and typically uh, we have our sales force here and come into Madison yeah. and usually around that same time frame we'll do an all-employee meeting uh, which we capture using obviously our technology <laughs> so that's available to people who are in Japan for example yeah. or, or other places uh, so uh, it, it's really kind of that set of management discipline that, that goes into running the company. Gotcha. And then lots of ad hoc <laughs> like you said sure there's an issue we should probably figure this out uh, and so you've probably interviewed a lot of people over, over in your days. Uh, how, I'm thinking more of the intangibles. Like how do you get a sense to get to know somebody in a, could be a fairly short amount of time, you know, it might be over like, you know, a month or two, but, uh, you know, have you, have you learned anything about what type of intangibles are important um, that make somebody a, a good fit? I think that's. It. I know it's not a loaded question because like a CFO is gonna have different tangibles than like the head of HR versus the engineer. Um, but yeah, do you have any at least thoughts or general advice about uh, hiring? I think um, you're, you're correct in pointing out that the way in which you get to assess somebody depends upon what capabilities you're interviewing for, right? It, I would say that the easiest for me interview is interviewing a technical person because mm -hmm. it's pretty easy to have a dialogue and ask questions that can pretty quickly get you to understand uh, whether the person really understands the technology you're trying to get how, them how, to how do. do. You, how do you dig in? All right. Um, I mean, do you start just asking general, general questions or you say, hey, this is a scenario that we have, like, what do you think? Or sure. I mean, the, 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 I don't do this anymore, but no, the right, people right, who work right, for right, me, yeah. right, would, would maybe even go through the a three-step process that would have a one-on-one -on -one interview, maybe have the individual talk to other team members, and then maybe even go to the extreme of giving uh, an individual a problem and asking yeah, yeah. them to come back and tell you how they would solve that problem. Uh, that's pretty analytic. I mean, either you, either you know the subject or you don't know the subject. I think that also applies to finance. Uh, I think it's harder when you get into sales and mm -hmm. marketing uh, because uh, uh, I've, I've kidded with people and the hardest thing to hire is a salesperson because salespeople by definition <laughs> right. can know how to tell sell. the story, right? right? Yeah. And, and so you have to, you have to assess uh, their, I'll say relationship skills because our, our business is a relationship selling business. You don't, you don't sell a widget and walk away from it. You, you sell a technology, you sell a service, you have a relationship that you want to build on over time. And that requires a set of sales skills that's probably a little bit different than your average product salesman. 
Uh, and so uh, that, I will fully admit that assessing those skills is more of an art than it is okay. a science. So let's talk a little bit, uh, we're, we're nearing the end, but let's talk a little bit about the, the future and uh, you know, kind of where, where do you want to take Sonic Foundry over the next three years? Um, any new products or just kind of continue to grow you know, the education and corporate market? Um, I, I think video technology and the kind of capabilities that we inherently have as part of our products uh, can offer a lot of value to a wide range of customers when they're integrated into uh, the business of the customer. So up until this point, we've sold a fairly generic platform, meaning we sell servers, recorders, software that we pretty much rely on the customer to install and operate in their own institution to do generic things like lecture capture or corporate communications. Uh, we have a customer that we closed last year called Nordoff Health. Mm -hmm. And uh, this is kind of the example of a partnering model as opposed to a just selling a technology and letting the customer implement it. Uh, Nordoff Health essentially runs a business that helps hospitals in the Netherlands and in Germany to gain accreditation or maintain their accreditation. So they compose content which involves video which they sell to their customers on a subscription basis. And they want to enable their customers to capture their own content in their own individual hospitals. So we've done a, a deal with them where we essentially license our technology and our hosting services to build video into that business proposition for their customers. So the customer that's buying the solution is buying a Nordoff Health solution. They, they don't know it's media yeah, site. They right. don't know it's. They just are buying an end-use solution. We provide the technology under the covers. Nordoff pays us, and we think that's a very that's yeah. good growth model for the future. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like you said, videos. It's been taken off, but now it's really you know, it, people are becoming even. I mean, some people would think, oh, video. That's been that's been done, but I think it's going to just be more and more involved in our life. Yeah, um, I would add. I would add that video as a raw technology. Has been done. Yeah, I yeah. mean, you know, MP4, it's H.264, <laughs> right. it's all those technologies. But how you integrate video into the value proposition you're trying to sell to your end customer, not us, but Nordoff as an example to their end customer, that's a that's still an interesting challenge. And it's more about an application level packaging than it is a raw technology packaging. The the last thing I would make in terms of the future, uh, we did a distribution agreement with China. Uh, about two years ago. And we see the China market as a big potential growth element. Uh, and so we look for that to uh, a geographic element to the strategy as well to grow the business. Hmm. Interesting. Uh, have, you, have you gotten much inroads into China? Well, again, it's, it's, it's a matter partners. of yeah, our partners yeah, developing right. the inroads, right? And yeah. uh, we're, we're very fortunate to have a very good a partner originally part of Newsoft Technology in China and now uh, an independent spinoff called Pushy Tech. Uh, they, the gentleman who runs it is very experienced in both uh, education and technology and he's doing a great job of, of developing the applications of the technology inside China. Gotcha, okay. Well, I think that just about does it for the, this interview. So, Gary, really appreciate your time and uh, you have a lot of rich and a good experience. Uh, I learned a lot and I think uh, I hope everyone else did too so appreciate your time and your thoughts.
You bet, Dave. Thanks for talking to me. Definitely, and it's uh, always excited to do an in-person interview. That makes it uh, for me a lot more, a lot more engaging. And uh, and thanks to everyone else uh, for listening to another episode of Flyover Labs. As always, I definitely appreciate it. And uh, we'll see you next time. Thanks, Gary. Thanks, thanks everyone.